The lesson, however obscure the packaging, is remarkably relevant and timely. If you're going to step out as a leader of God's people, then you had better be leading your own family at home. Get yourself sorted out. Get your wife and yourself on the same page before you attempt to function as any kind of leader or officer in God's house. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Before you step out as a leader of God's people, you better be leading yourself and your family at home. That is a very useful reminder for us all, and here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 4. You will recall that in Exodus chapter 3, God had spoken to Moses out of the burning bush. He had revealed to him the meaning of the divine name and had commissioned him to act as his agent in the redemption of his people out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses expresses some concern. It isn't that Moses doesn't believe in God. Rather, he fears that the people will not believe that God has sent him. After all, Moses tried once before to act as the liberator of the Israelites, and he was not very well received. That's where we re-enter the story at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So here Moses is given the ability to perform three signs. We presume that these were signs that Moses could pull out as necessary over the course of the narrative, although there is no mention of him ever performing the leprosy sign. Regardless, the purpose of these signs is stated explicitly in the narrative. They were given that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you. I mentioned in the previous episode that the revelation that came through Moses would have felt as new and as strange in the ears of the ancient Israelites as the subsequent new revelations associated with the New Testament would have seemed to the Jews of the first century. This was a massive leap forward 
in terms of what we tend to call progressive revelation. So how would the Israelites know to receive this new revelation? That's where these signs come in. These signs were to function as Moses' accreditation, attesting to his position as prophet and redeemer. Now, as for the symbolism associated with the particular signs, it's not provided in the text, but we can make some educated guesses. All three signs have to do with change and transformation. A rod becomes a snake, a hand is diseased and then healed, and water is turned to blood. So these signs suggest the power to change things and the authority to affect a great social and religious transformation. They also hint at God's power and sovereignty over the land and nation of Egypt. The snake was actually part of the headdress that was worn by Egyptian pharaohs. And leprosy was a disease that was particularly associated with Egypt in the ancient world. And the Nile, of course, functioned as a god in the Egyptian pantheon. So these signs communicated very clearly that God, Yahweh, was the ultimate power in the land of Egypt. Not Pharaoh and not any of the gods and goddesses associated with the powers of nature. Yahweh was sovereign over Egypt, and Yahweh had decided that it was time for his people to be leaving. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can. I'm curious about this pattern here where God draws attention to his work of redemption by providing Moses the ability to perform certain signs and wonders. So how far do we extend that pattern? I mean, this is a little crazy to say, but should every gospel church be turning sticks into snakes, water into blood, etc.? I mean, how does this work out in practice? Well, the most obvious fulfillment of this pattern, of course, would be found in the person and work of Jesus. The Old Testament explicitly says that the people are to watch for a prophet like Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, God says to Moses, right near the end of his life, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So the people knew that at some point in the future, another prophet deliverer would come and he would be like, and he would do like Moses. So Moses did miracles. So Jesus did miracles. Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Moses called down manna in the desert. Jesus fed 5,000 people in the desert from a couple loaves of bread. So we're seeing the pattern. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. So he had to do miracles that were similar to the miracles that Moses did, only better. Jesus, of course, did things that went way beyond what Moses did. Moses never raised a man from the dead, but Jesus did. Moses never walked on the water, but Jesus did. So Jesus did things that were like what Moses did, only better. So that pattern most obviously falls on Jesus, but to a lesser extent, it also falls on the early church as a whole, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. The foundation of the church is the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So there is a sense in which the prophets foreshadow Jesus, they anticipate, and the apostles explicate Jesus. So they echo and expand. And so you do see echoes and extensions of the miracles of Jesus at work 
through the apostles and to a lesser extent through the church as a whole across the ages. But should we expect to see the same number and magnitude of miraculous events in the church today uh, as we saw in the time of Jesus? Well, let me put it this way. Miracles are like fireworks. They're meant to draw attention. They, they are meant to mark special occasions. The Apostle John actually calls them signs in his gospel as opposed to miracles. Just to make that point explicit, signs point to things. The miracles in Jesus' day were meant to underscore his unique identity and mission. They were meant to say, look over here. Look what God is doing. This is the one we've been waiting for. So obviously there was something unique about that. There had to be. If you have fireworks every day of the year, first of all, you're going to know your neighbors, but then also <laughs> you're going to kind of obscure the significance of Canada Day or Victoria Day or whatever it is you're supposed to be celebrating. Same thing with miracles. But, but just to be clear, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that God doesn't act in special ways in the church today. I believe he does. I believe in miracles. I think God will do things that will serve to remind the church and to remind the watching world that he is still God up on the throne and still actively at work in the world to save and sanctify his people. Amen. All right, that makes a ton of sense. Let's return to the story now at verse 10. Verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute? or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. As we spoke about in chapter 3, there are certain traditions and customs around ancient Eastern etiquette that ought to inform our interpretation of this passage. The first two objections of Moses in the story should almost certainly be understood as examples of ritual protest. This was a form of exaggerated humility. The Bible is full of these sorts of statements that sound very odd to our modern and particularly Western ears. We think of the time when David was invited to become the son-in-law of King Saul in 1 Samuel 18.23. He said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? Closed quote. Well, David was actually not a man of no reputation. He was already more famous as a warrior than Saul. That was part of the problem. But this sort of exaggerated humility was expected when dealing with a superior. So in all likelihood, Moses did not have a speech impediment per se, there's certainly no evidence of that either before or after this incident. Moses is being deferential in a way that seems odd to us, but God is responding with encouragement and equipping. You can do it because I will generously equip you to do it. I will give you a mouth to speak and words to say. 
God says. However, in verse 13, when Moses objects for the third time in the story, he does seem to cross a line. He is no longer demonstrating appropriate humility. Now he's just being faithless and disobedient. And we should take note of that. There is a point at which humility becomes just a polite way of robbing God. At some point, it is a sham and a cover for disobedience. If God tells you to do something and he promises to equip you to do that something, then you should shut up and do it. And so God is angry at Moses here. But nevertheless, out of an abundance of kindness, he promises further help and provision. Aaron will stand with Moses and share the pressures and responsibilities of leadership, something that no doubt brought great encouragement and assurance to this reluctant redeemer. Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. As was often the case in the ancient world, when a monarch died, there was a declared amnesty for all the old enemies of his administration. And so it was here. The old pharaoh was dead, and this coincided perfectly with God's commission for Moses to return to Egypt in order to serve as his agent of the Exodus. Verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, this passage has created a great deal of unrest for Bible readers over the ages, myself among them. This passage began a long and disturbing journey in my own theological pilgrimage. What does it mean that God would harden Pharaoh's heart? How is that fair? What does that mean? Does he still do that sort of thing still today? Those are good questions, and a full answer to them would put us well beyond our time limit for these episodes, so I'll post a longer article on this question that you should be able to find on the website and through the various social media accounts. In brief, there are 20 different references to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in this story. Half of them are attributed to Pharaoh's own character, and half of them to divine causality. The JPS Torah commentary adds helpfully here, It is to be noted that in the first five plagues, Pharaoh's obduracy is self-willed. It is only thereafter that it is attributed to divine causality. Closed quote. It should also be noted that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is specific to the matter of the Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh in his chosen resistance to the liberation of God's people, in order to display the full range of his sovereign control over the pagan gods and false powers of the land of Egypt. The text does not say that God prevented Pharaoh from repenting of his stubbornness after the fact. 
Pharaoh was used, but he was not unjustly damned, and there is no question of Pharaoh's own moral culpability in this story. So this would be a classic example of what some scholars refer to as compatibilism. The complete control of God over events is presented side by side with the reality of moral responsibility. Both are true. Pharaoh makes real choices in this story, and God superintends those choices to ensure that events unfold as he has ordained. Now, that is complicated, to be sure, but it is not fatalism. And the fact that we struggle to understand such things does not prove in any way their unreality. God is sovereign, and people make real choices for which they are responsible. Both of these truths are presented often side by side in the Bible. Thanks be to God. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Sipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now this passage is arguably the most obscure passage in the entire book. Some of that obscurity has to do with the ancient nature of the story. Some of the customs that lie behind these three verses are lost to history. Some of the obscurity has to do with the grammar in the text. It isn't clear, for example, who the him is in verse 24. Is it Moses or is it Gershom? And we aren't entirely sure who or what Zipporah touched with the foreskin in verse 25. The ESV adds the word Moses, but that word is not in the Hebrew text. So there is a lot we don't know. And once again, a full explanation would put us well beyond our time limit for this episode. So again, I'll post an article on the website offering hopefully some further depth of insight. In brief, it seems that as Moses and his little family were traveling from Midian to Egypt, God somehow arrested them. God assaulted them. Now, it, it, it seems best to think that this assault was targeted at Moses. Moses is probably the him in verse 24. Perhaps he had a seizure or became suddenly very ill. We aren't sure how this attack was carried out. We know that Zipporah understood immediately what was going on, so we know it was clear to her. Now, we also know that it was slow acting because Zipporah had enough time to do what was needed. She knew that the offending issue was the uncircumcision of Gershom. Now, here is where we get into the obscurity of ancient customs. The Midianites did, in fact, practice circumcision, but they did it later than was commanded of the Israelites. Some scholars say that it happened in Midian circles just before a young man was married. So, it seems that Moses had raised his son effectively as a Midianite. Now, the fact that God somehow incapacitated Moses and deals now with Zipporah suggests that she had been opposed to Moses' intent to circumcise Gershom as a baby, the way God commanded Abraham to do it back in Genesis 17. We know that Moses was not feeling confident as a leader during his sojourn in Midian, so he appears to have let his wife have her way. 
But now God is saying to this little family that if Moses is going to be the leader of God's people, then Moses needs to begin leading in his own home. This family will need to begin to act as Hebrews, or they will die as outsiders. That seems to be the message. And Zipporah understands that immediately. She is the one who takes the flint knife and circumcises her son, Gershom. She then performs a ritual act that we believe was part of the Midianite ritual of circumcision, which, of course, would have been the only version of the rite that she would have ever seen. She takes the bloody foreskin and touches the child with it. She marks him in blood. Again, the word Moses is not in the Hebrew of verse 25. So Douglas Stewart here, for example, says, Zipporah touched the foreskin of Gershom to Gershom's genitals from which it had been removed. Feet is one of the Hebrew euphemisms for genitals. She thus had physically circumcised Gershom. Then immediately she symbolically used the removed foreskin to touch Gershom's genitals and said the right words, closed quote. Thus, you are a bridegroom or kinsman of blood, both translations are equally valid, was the ritual saying associated with the Midianite circumcision ritual, the only one she knew. God accepts it for what it was, an act of faith and obedience. And the story proceeds on from there. The lesson, however obscure the packaging, is remarkably relevant and timely. If you're going to step out as a leader of God's people, then you had better be leading your own family at home. Get yourself sorted out. Get your wife and yourself on the same page before you attempt to function as any kind of leader or officer in God's house. Verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron, all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Now here we see that God had sent Aaron to Moses at the same time that he had sent Moses to Aaron. So God is always one step ahead and he knows our needs and weaknesses even better than we do. We also see that the signs that Moses had been given were effective in stirring up faith among the Israelites. Verse 31 says succinctly, and the people believed. They heard the word, they saw the signs, and they believed, and they bowed their heads and worshiped. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, that story about God trying to kill Moses and Zipporah performing an emergency circumcision on Gershom, would it be fair to say that that is possibly the weirdest story in the entire <laughs> Bible? Well, I think it would definitely be top three. Uh, now, part of the strangeness, obviously, has to do with all the foreignness of some of the primary details. I mean, we're a long way, historically and culturally, from the ancient Midianite traditions around circumcision. So the assumed details tend to completely elude us as modern readers. But then there's also the fact that we 
tend to think of God like some sort of cosmic Santa Claus. He's a sweet old man who just wants to give us some candy. So when he shows up in this story prepared to kill Moses for failing to fulfill his duty as an Israelite and as a father, we have no frame of reference for that. But Old Testament and New, God is holy and he expects to be obeyed, particularly by those who would claim to represent him before his people. Leaders are held to a higher standard. James, the brother of Jesus, writing in the New Testament, appears to have understood that very well. He said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That's James 3.1. So there is a high bar for leaders and teachers in the kingdom of God, and you better be practicing what you're preaching or you may receive a visit from a holy God. Mm, Absolutely. That is a very useful warning, and we'll look forward to hearing more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. In this week's episode, Pastor Paul made reference to two longer articles he wrote about explaining the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the bridegroom of blood, that strange encounter with God, Moses, Zipporah, and Gershom. So if you want to find those, you can find them posted today on the Into the Word Facebook page or at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also find all the audio content for Into the Word on the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 